Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and I am especially honored today to be joined by the founder of Cambridge, as well as the executive chairman of the board of directors, Eric Schwartz. Thank you for being here with us, Eric. Thanks. It's great to be here and have a chance to talk to the people I'm not seeing that I want to be seeing. Yes, that's what's really special about where we've come over the last, especially the last six or seven months, forced to do more virtual, even though podcasts were definitely popular before this. So it's been a lot of fun, and we're really glad that you could be here with us today. Thanks. So let's just start off by you telling our listeners, in your own words, your story, your journey. Tell the audience a little bit about your background, how you became as successful as you are today, and what really drove you to get into this business. Okay, that shouldn't take more than an hour or two by itself. (laughs) So, well, I grew up in the New York and Connecticut area. When I was 10 years old, my father was always talking about stocks at the dinner table. So I started following stocks, even bought my first stock when I was 10, made $25. That was pretty exciting. And considering I was getting 50 cents an hour at the time, that was a lot of, that was a good deal. (laughs) But my parents were never people to tell me a lot like I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that. And I realized many years later that basically, like many kids, I sort of adopted how they behaved in turn. And they always just went about their business and treated people well. And I've realized that's one of the real things that got us going. When I started Cambridge originally, you know, the first 12 years were sort of the lean years. And the only advantage I had over any competitors was being able to treat people well. I could do an infinite amount of treating people well, and it didn't cost anything. But most of our competitors that were much larger, you know, they were all about the finances and their rules and how do they make the most profit. And so you just use the resources you have. And that I realized quickly when I didn't have any money, at least I could be nice to people. And I guess it just came naturally that I wanted to please people. And, you know, still today, people pick up on that. We try to treat people well at Cambridge. I think that that comes second, third, or fourth at many of our competitors, especially as they get bigger and are owned, are either public or owned by private equity. And therefore, they got a lot of pressure on them to deliver certain outcomes. So I think that another influence in my life was getting involved in meditation and ethics, studying psychology and philosophy in college. And I think that directed me more towards that, yes, I'm going to have to make a living, so I'm going to find a, a something to do. But at the same time, I didn't feel comfortable if I didn't have a bigger purpose, a bigger purpose for what my life could be and a bigger purpose for what the company would be. And that was, to some degree or another, make a difference in people's lives, be it the people that worked at Cambridge, the investors, and as time went on, the advisors who joined, which wasn't until about 10 or 15 years into that journey. So I just spent a little bit of time with some new associates and reflected myself on the history to follow up a little bit on what you were just describing. Cambridge, from a heart perspective, has been here for the almost 40 years we're about to celebrate. But 
What was your first job? This is one of my favorite stories, or maybe the only other job, as I hear it sometimes. And then we weren't called Cambridge, right? This, your, your journey took a couple of twists and turns as you figured out what Cambridge is today, perhaps was you know what your ultimate vision was. Right. It is true that I never had a full-time job before I started at Cambridge, which was actually at that time called Enric Financial Services and another company, Enric Petroleum. Enric is spelled E-N-E-R-I-C, of which is a combination of Eric and energy. So energy, Eric, because we were doing oil and gas investments at the time. And so that broker dealer went on for about 15 years. But when we decided to switch from putting together products, be it real estate and oil and gas, to focusing just on the advisor side, that's when we started Cambridge. And then we run, ran the two side by side for six or seven years, as you know, because you were involved with part of that. And then eventually we closed down the old Enric when Cambridge was now 10 times the size of it. So that's sort of how all those pieces came together at that time. And really the switch over from oil and gas and to second degree, some degree uh, real estate over to the advisory side was really the fact that my skills weren't suited to finding oil and gas. They were much more suited to running a company focused on pleasing our employees and pleasing our advisors. So I was very good at making advisors happy, but I wasn't very good at finding oil. So eventually after pounding my head against the wall enough times, I said, oh. And in fact, at that time, we had about 20 advisors. And even though they were only doing 500,000 of business total, this was in 1992, I was still making as much money off that as I was trying to do my primary business that was taking 95% of my time. So you could say that I had this great vision and people accused me of being a visionary. It was just like common sense. Well, duh, you're not doing anything and this thing's growing and you're doing a ton and this thing is failing. So I just got redirected to focus on the broker-dealer rather, rather than just as an underwriter for our offerings in the up till 92 to be the core business. And it's between 92 and 95 that we really, we built out the broker dealer to be able to do more than just the very basics of mutual funds and private placements and got a clearing firm and got E&O insurance and set up the RIA, set up the insurance agency. Those things all happened between 92 and 95 and then we actually launched it. And that's when we started pretty much doubling every year. And it was about 97, we were up to 4 million in revenues and you joined. Fortunately, you were wanting to be somewhere in this vicinity. And uh, as you know, the, after that, now what we're now 250 times that size. Crazy. So I got it the first mile and you took it the next 100. That's, it's team, it's a team. I remember sitting in a room. So in theory, I believe on record somewhere, I read the first independent broker-dealer, Raymond James, was started sometime in the 60s. But in my mind, even though I was not didn't even know what this business was in the 70s, 
I think early 80s was when many of the fiercely independent entrepreneurs of today's independent broker dealer space started their firms. And I remember you being in the room a few years ago with one of those individuals and paraphrasing some here, but he was lamenting perhaps about the fact that it felt to him like each time there was a an opportunity to take a turn in the road that you took the right one and he took the wrong one, which is why your firm grew significantly and his firm was still about the same size as it was. And part of it, I think you just hit on one of the keys, but I, we want to hear from you on what you think makes that difference, is that you recognize what your strengths and weaknesses were and built around. And a lot of entrepreneurs perhaps don't spend enough time reflecting on those things and setting their ego aside and when's the right time to hire and how do you face that as a strong, fierce entrepreneur and how does it work to your advantage? Can you share with us? Well, I think, you know, we certainly see it and we can certainly see it amongst advisors, but also people that have run broker dealers and basically in life in general, that we have personalities that work for us and against us in life and more specifically in our business. So some people are really, really good at handling all the details and being a one-man show or one-woman show. And for me, although at least in the early days, I still could handle details, not necessarily as well as some people, but I had to. But I'm more of somebody that would rather delegate out things. And when I first started out, my attitude was, well, if that person can only do that job 80% as well as I can, then we're still okay if I spend all my time getting new advisors and keeping our existing advisors happy. Eventually, as the years went by and we could actually pay more money, we got people like you who actually could do what you were doing 120% as well as I could. And certainly now with things like technology and compliance that I'm you know, would be fired immediately if I was trying to be involved. It's even more so. So to me, delegating came completely naturally. And I accepted uh, my ability to delegate was based in good part on my willingness to let people do it a way that's different than the way I would do it. At first, I was like, no, no, they have to do it this way. And then I realized they started doing things different. And I would hear them speak to an advisor on the phone. They'd say things, oh, my God, I was horrified. They actually said that to the people. But the people actually liked them anyway or even more than they liked me or whatever it may be. So I discovered that there are many ways to get this done in many different personalities. And you just try to get the best people on the boat and then have them find their place. And even today, obviously, we have people that come in in one job and, you know, 10 years later, they've been through three or four different jobs, but now they have found their home. So that's a lot of how some of that happened. And many of our advisors, I think, reach out to you for advice, in particular around when to hire. And I've heard you coach them about sometimes, almost always, hire before you need them, hire sometimes before you can even afford them. I remember, I think distinctly that you were paying me when you hired me more than you were paying yourself. So those are some of the decisions that they should think about because you can't grow to the next level often if you don't have the support team around you. Yeah, well, 
Absolutely, it's true. Both you and another woman that was working for us at the time, both were being paid more than I was. Of course, you can't really pay somebody at the end of the year if there's any money left over. And so that, which was what I was, for eight years, I didn't take a salary and I was just basically getting, well, if there was a few dollars left, I would get it. Otherwise the credit cards continued for a while. So yes, and even since then, we've talked about this before, you know, where you better hire that person now rather than in the fall, because otherwise your brains are gonna be splattered on the wall. <laughs> and it is tough. And every successful business must have gone through periods where the bottom line or the senior people's salaries were put second or third in line behind the needs of the company, the needs of getting good employees and so on. And some people think, oh, you make the money and then you can add the people. And often, especially for small organizations like many of our advisors, no, it's really the opposite. You hire the person and yes, your salary goes down for a year but then two or three years later, your salary is double what it was before. That also sometimes is dependent on the circumstances of the advisor. I had gotten used to living on almost nothing. Uh, many people have probably heard the story that I first made $50,000 when I was 44, $50,000 a year. I finally got there when I was 44. I've tried to explain that to all the employees, but somehow they won't accept that that's what they should do. What they should do, um, even adjusted for inflation. But again, not because of some brilliant, just as how I was. I always was looking out to build the future and not worry about what happens in the next few years so much. And that I was willing to take what I could take because I was trying to build something. But I realized not everybody can do that, obviously, especially if you have children and other responsibilities. But certainly, you build the best organization you can, and then everything starts working. And it's a good story because I actually ended up where I am, but there's three or four times there where I could have gone out of business. And at least two of those cases, there was someone specific that could have put me into bankruptcy. And I made a deal to pay them off over three or four years, and they figured that was better than getting nothing because there wouldn't be any assets to take. So that's, again, a relationship thing. What would seem to be a hard money thing was solved by them trusting me because I've treated them well and the commitment to pay 10000 a month for four years was more valuable than forcing me into bankruptcy. But those are some days that seem strange today where we are. But let's face it, every company has started... Well, almost every company starts really small. There are some companies these days that get hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of financing right from the get-go, but obviously that wasn't Cambridge, and that really hasn't, wasn't very many broker-dealers in our industry or certainly not advisors. It's you're building it one brick at a time. Great perspective. Thank you. So let's pivot a little bit and come back to talking about you is there one particular accomplishment that stands out to you as you were shaping that journey that we've just spent some time talking about? Well, I mentioned it in passing before, but really it was surviving the 12 lean years. In the Bible, there were only seven, but apparently I needed a little more instruction, so I got 12, which was basically 1980 to 1992. 
And that's where 92 is where I shifted the focus to the broker-dealer from the oil and gas and other private placements. Again, literally during that time, my average salary was pro or take home was around $25,000. And twice in that period, both myself and the company had negative net worths. And so it was, I'm glad I did it when I was young because if I did it at this age, I'm not sure I would survive it. But what it taught me is a number of things. Number one, it taught me how to be prudent with the finances of the company. Just because you suddenly make a couple of sales, don't assume that that's going to continue forever. We've seen that with advisors who sometimes go bankrupt because they, they doubled their business one year, so they've already spending the money and then the economy goes down or whatever. So I learned to, to absolutely squeeze out the last penny, both on the income side, but since I couldn't control the income so much, it was more on the expense side. So in spite of the things we've talked about, about hiring early and doing those things, I also knew how to really squeeze it back when we had to. And that philosophy resonated with some people, and I think including you, and, but it's sort of become one of the reasons that we're still going and many of our smaller competitors have had to sell over the years because they weren't prudent with the finances. So we always watch things. We're always looking a couple of years out ahead and saying, how much money I'm going to need. The reason one of those firms didn't put us out of business is I had enough money in the bank to make the first five, 10,000 a month payments to them so I could always keep ahead of my commitment and not run out of cash. So, you know, we try to, as you know, we have very low debt compared to our competitors. Most of our competitors are up around six times EBITDA. And we've traditionally run, well, we, for many years, we traditionally ran at zero. But now with the, all the financial commitments you have to have to build a broker dealer, spending 20 million a year on technology, recruiting costs are way up, um, small acquisitions, all these things cost so much more money that you can't do it without debt when everybody else is borrowing and getting infusions of capital. So I think that was one piece. And the other piece I realized was every one of my competitors was way ahead of me. Most of the firms that are now our size or even in some cases 5% our size were five or 10 or 20 or 100 times our size back then. So the only thing I really had was me, that I could call up the advisor whether it was a potential advisor or an existing advisor and try to win him with my willingness to be responsive. That was our first ad we put in a magazine, responsive broker dealer. And I started getting 10 phone calls a month. Thought I'd gone to heaven for those $300 ads. But the only thing I could offer was to be nicer than them, to say yes to more things than them, but make sure the things we said yes to didn't put us out of business. So I spent a lot of time, an advisor would call up and say, well, I want to put my assets at Schwab and my broker dealers won't let me. So I'd immediately call up someone named Terry Lister, an attorney that we worked with, who's still a good friend and say, can we do that? And he'd tell me how and say, but you got to supervise it. You got to look at the monthly confirms that come in and this, that, and the other. And we just, that's how our open architecture began to exist, trying to say yes to advisors, but in a way that would keep us going. And while it was predicted by many of our competitors, once they actually knew who we were, that we would go out of business because we had so much flexibility, we couldn't possibly be supervising it. 
I always had that in the back of my mind, even though regulation wasn't nearly as severe as today, that, okay, we got to do it, but in a way that actually makes money and won't put us away five or 10 years down the road. So really all that came out of those early years where that really was the only avenue open to us. We weren't going to win based on anything else other than treating people incredibly well and trying to say yes to them. And that really grew out of, back to the earlier question, to my parents' way with me as I grew up, which was they didn't tell me what to do. Their parents had been totally controlling and told them what to do all the time, so they didn't want to do that. So even when I was deciding between colleges, for example, they never told me which one they wanted me to go to. Later on, I found out if I had done something different, they wouldn't have been very happy, but you know, they encouraged me to find my way, for me to control my journey. And obviously that's a tagline we use today. So I adopted that almost unknowingly and it worked for me because advisors appreciated being treated like an adult, not a child. And I just thought that was normal because that's how my parents treated me. And then I realized, oh, this is the only thing, only chance I've got is if I have to, I have to treat the advisors way better than everybody else. And I like to think we're still treating our advisors way better than everybody else. Of course, everybody else is now down to about five main competitors versus back then when there were hundreds. Yeah, as you were talking, what flashed through my mind is that the core values that we use today, based on what you've just explained, we really have to credit your parents for those in many ways, right? Because it's perpetual. I agree with you that while things are different because there's, you know, 950, I think I was told yesterday, employees now and over, you know, a significant amount of advisors compared to maybe back then when you were describing it. I don't know how many advisors you had back then, but... Well, it depends on which time, but in 92, we had like 18, and by 95, we had maybe 30, 40, and then you joined, we had in 98, maybe 100. 100. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so lots of things have changed, but what you were just describing is perpetual. It's still there. I believe that our current associates, even though they've maybe never even heard you talk about this yeah. yet, hopefully they'll listen to this podcast, but they're still doing the same thing because that's who we are. While we would have been closed very quickly if I didn't do it back then, it'll take a little longer, but if we stop doing it now, we'll end in the graveyard too because, yeah, we're not going to beat our largest competitors who are either public companies or backed by private equity by paying more, by having more money to throw at things. And so that was forced upon us to some degree early on. And now it's forced on us because we choose not to sell. I often joke these days that my biggest job is to do nothing. And that nothing is not selling. But if you're not going to have the maximum dollars because you have private equity or somebody else that's public behind you, you got to have some secret sauce. And I know many of our competitors still can't figure out what the secret sauce is. They talk to our senior people sometimes. Why are we growing faster than them without, when we're paying less front money? We don't do big acquisitions, you know, and we're not super aggressive in all those areas. And so basically the answer is we treat our advisors well. But to them, they already think they're treating advisors well. But it's all a question of how well is well. You treat them well 
because you smile when you tell them that they have to do it your way. That's not quite the same as actually listening to them and saying, can I actually create complexity for me and difficulty for me potentially, but give the advisors and the clients what they really want? And maybe it's simplistic, but that's ultimately what Cambridge is all about. And that led to later on when, how many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, when we actually came up with the four values, they were things we were already doing in good degree. You know, the one I was most keen on was flexibility because that's just the way my mind worked. I remember Jim Guy, who many of the advisors still remember as a great partner of ours, he was focused on kindness, which is kind of interesting because he had some people, a sort of grumpy disposition might be the word, and yet kindness was what was really in his heart, even though sometimes it didn't show. Um, and I'm getting a little emotional thinking That's about okay. Jim. I know. But those things were all there before. The difference is that they grew organically out of what we were doing and what we're still trying to do. You can say we're going to work with integrity or we're going to be flexible, but flexible as long as it gives us the highest return this week or flexible in a way that will make us successful 10 years from now. And again, thinking long-term has always been another thing that helped Cambridge be successful because we were really looking at, is this rule, this project going to help us be more sustainable 10 years from now, even if it causes less income right now or whatever? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So listeners, tune in next time for part two of my conversation with Eric where we discuss self-care and spending time with family, as well as growth, adaptation, and connection within Cambridge and the financial services industry. Cambridge Stronger, my friends. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at CambridgeStronger.com. That's CambridgeStronger.com. We are Cambridge Stronger.